This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having the head of Physique 57 Solution and Jennifer Manavi. And I had the pleasure of meeting her recently on a, a webinar where we were talking about life during and after COVID. So we are going to talk about the future of fitness and that we will reemerge. So Jennifer, great to meet you and good to have you on. Yeah, great to be on. Thank you. So, uh, so you started out, uh, you know, more traditionally in the uh, finance and wealth management, like uh, like myself, and morphed into a uh, more fulfilling day to day lifestyle and improvement in probably your own psyche, like I had, uh, as well as uh, as helping thousands of people. So, you want to just give a little bit of your personal background and then talk about physique and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. So I had, even when I was little, wanted to get into the business world and I was a dancer though, growing up. And I never even thought for a second that I could combine both. So mm-hmm. I started off dancing when I was about two and I danced through college, but I really liked business and I really followed a, a business trajectory And as soon as I left college, I joined Wall Street. I worked for an asset management firm. I've worked in fixed income. I've worked in equities. I've even worked in futures and private banking. And I really enjoyed it. And then on the side, I would exercise or dance. And again, it just never dawned on me that I could combine the two. Because at the time in New York City in the 90s, you either had huge gyms like Equinox Mm-hmm. Or you had little tiny yoga studios or Pilates studios, but there was like nothing in between. So I just never thought that I could start a business that would combine dance, fitness, and just pure business uh, operations. And uh, and then one day, luckily, it did dawn on me <laughs> that I could do that. And so I, I in 2005, I had this idea to keep... Uh, a fitness studio, a boutique fitness studio going that had abruptly closed. And this was before boutique fitness was even a word. This is before wellness mm-hmm. was even a word. This was when there was just kind of this random studio that taught something called the Lottie Burke method on the Upper East Side was uh, going for about 20 years. That studio closed and I joined up with Tanya Becker, their top instructor, to start Physique 57. And so at the time, without all of this new language around it. It was really just a, uh, an exercise studio on the eighth floor of an art gallery building with no signage whatsoever. And you paid per class. And even back then paying per class was this strange idea. And the mm-hmm. 10 class pack 20, all of that stuff was so new. And, um, what had happened was I was really doing well and I liked finance, but I, really, really liked fitness. So when this opportunity came about, I just jumped on it. And I, I really didn't think much about it. It was like a 48-hour decision <laughs> that I left oh. one one pursued and went after another because the Lottie Burke method closed pretty abruptly. And she just closed her doors and I was like panicking. And she gave me Tanya Becker's phone number uh, when she was closing and said, well, you know, I'm closing, I'm going on my way. But if you wanted to keep doing this form of exercise, call Tanya and maybe you two can work something out. And that was like, with that, she was off into the the sunset. And I called Tanya and I said, well, if we're ever going to do bar classes again, we better team up and do this. Cause from what I can tell, we're the only two people that really want to <laughs> really have the passion or right. the interest in keeping this going. So we did. And that, and that was 15 years ago. 
So, you know, given your, you know, your academic and, and, you know, putting business plans together and looking at, you know, total addressable market, you know, in that 48 hour period, were you thinking with, with any of that part of your, your left brain or was it like, Hey, you know, I know this works. I know I'm willing to pay for it. I know other people are passionate about this and, you know, that's enough of a barometer for me to make a change. Well, I think a lot of, you know, as it should, a lot of business decisions have to start with passion, but you need to get yourself into an Excel spreadsheet pretty quickly. So Mm -hmm. it really did start with me imagining what the business model would look like. And I had, I like started from scratch. I just opened up a Excel spreadsheet and I was like, okay, well, let's see people come and they give you money and then you have to pay the instructors <laughs> and you have to pay the rent. And I'm sure towels cost something and I'm sure it costs something to buy shampoo and conditioner. And I, I really just like imagined what this PL would look like. And fortunately, like kind of no matter how I sliced it, if you could get 300 or so people to come each day and if your rent could be you know, around a certain neighborhood that I was learning about then, um, and if you paid teachers about what I was assuming you would pay a teacher, you, you came up with a profitable model. And I, and I say this to a lot of people that building out this type of a business model is not too complicated, different than so many other businesses. You don't have supply chain, you don't have accounts receivables. You, there's a lot of things you don't have to worry about. Sure. And it was really just people come in, they give you about at the time, $31, you pay the teachers, whatever you pay your landlord, whatever. And, and it, it just worked out to be, uh, and I was, and I was actually pretty, um, and I don't think it was because I have, it wasn't an IQ thing. I think it was just a matter of, I had been in the market for a while as a consumer and I kind I just knew how that business probably operated. And mm. fortunately the business model that I created on a whim was pretty accurate. And I would say, you can like any, any one of our clients in boutique fitness could probably create our, our, our P and L's for us. Cause it's really quite simple. If you just go through like a day in the life of a fitness studio, you can kind of figure it out. Um, and, but then you need to have passion and you have to want to do it and you want to mm-hmm. have to manage people and lead people and get financing and, and build out a studio. So it's not that easy, but at least the financial part was not the, was not the hardest part. And physique 57, you know, with the, uh, with solution at the end, what did that come up in that 48 hour period or was that a work in progress? That actually, that's just the name of the book. The company is just called physique 57. Uh, but oh, we wrote okay, a the book. book is, yes. I read, I, so I read some of the book. So yeah. So the book is called the physique 57 solution. Meaning if you, if you follow our exercises several times a week, and if you partner that with a good diet, you can, and, and as we've seen, even, even without following too much of a diet, we, have always delivered results in as soon as two weeks. So if you take four classes a week for just two weeks, you will see a change in your body. But Physique 57 itself came from the fact that not only was it on 57th Street, our first location between 5th and 6th Avenue in New York City, but also the class is 57 minutes. So that's how Physique 57 worked out. Got it, got it. So as you were, uh, you know, definitely the first mover in the space, and I agree with you, there was no nobody used the term boutique fitness, you know, before, you know, how did you think about how you wanted to grow, you know, just given your ability to use a financial, uh, you know, mindset and a, an Excel spreadsheet, you know, and <laughs> you know, what, what did you want to do or what was your vision of after one studio works, you know, how did you, 
how'd you think about that? Because a lot of entrepreneurs come to us and say, Hey, I want to have, you know, 500 locations. And I'm like, why don't we do like five (laughs) reassess it from there. So how did you kind of balance like your, you know, what you've been taught, which is like, all right, we're going to find something. We're going to grow it as Mm -hmm. rapidly as possible to say, Hey, look, you know what? I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm on 57th street. I got a great partner and instructor. This fits my lifestyle and I'll grow it at my pace. Definitely the latter. Um, at the time, it was such a new concept that even thinking that we could do like hundreds and hundreds would have been a complete pipe dream. And there was really zero proof of concept because there was only mm-hmm. this one studio. It had it was very successful, but it was just this one kind of anomaly that existed in New York City that we were attempting to... Um, to emulate. And, and it's not, it wasn't, it's not even related to that business. It was like a completely different business. So really, and to your point, I had a one-year-old Tanya, when I were in early thirties, new, new to running our own business. And it was very, very uh, time consuming and a big financial investment to even start this one studio. And then just a couple of months later, we opened up in the Hamptons. So we had Midtown, New York and as, um, as you know, and, and your listeners may know, a lot of people spend their summers in the Hamptons. So we knew we at least wanted those two, one being seasonal and one being obviously full-time. And during that summer in the Hamptons, we started to realize how people from all over Manhattan were taking our classes, not only in the Hamptons, but now also on, on, in Midtown. And at the time, downtown, believe it or not, it was not was not residential. So people didn't really live in Tribeca or downtown. And all of a sudden we started hearing that people were moving to Tribeca and people wanted us to be downtown and everything was about downtown, downtown, downtown. Whereas forever, everything was about uptown, uptown, uptown. (laughs) So I think it's really, um, there's a theory, you know, just follow your consumer. And what we were finding is that we had a ton of customers in Midtown and the Hamptons, but a lot of people were moving downtown. So the decision to answer your question, the decision to open up this third studio was very much a follow your client mentality. And I, I wasn't, I didn't start on 57th street really knowing that we would open up in Soho so soon thereafter. But when we opened on 57th street, we had wait lists and then one huge milestone was when a wait list has a wait list. So we had a, a ton of wait lists. We had a ton of people in the Hamptons. We had all these people moving downtown and you could get real estate very inexpensively down in Soho. Mm-hmm. So I found a huge 5,000 square foot, which was big for boutique fitness. A, a big, my first studio was only 2,500 square feet. We found, found a big 5,000 square foot space down in Soho that was just a, a phone, um, like the storage unit for a phone company. And it was just this huge space, very few columns, very inexpensive rent. And I just went for it. And that's how we started the third studio. And from there we had proof of concept and we started to build out more studios. But at the time it was really, let's like, let's get one going. Let's see how popular it is. And then let's from, you know, cash flow from operations, let's open the next one because we didn't, and we still have not taken money from outside investors. That's great. So when, when you, uh, when you started, you know, I'm looking right now at your, your, the, the background here. So you, you're inside one of the studios now. Yes, I am. So when you started the business, did you effectively live in the studio? 
Oh, yes. <laughs> I think my whole family lived in the studio. Yes. I mean, it was, it's a hundred percent all in. I remember I was trying to, one night it was a snowstorm, but I was trying to figure out this video technology. And I just like, couldn't stop because if I had stopped, it would have to start from the beginning, but it was a snowstorm and it was just such an entrepreneurial moment where you're like risking your life to get home, but you really want to get your business up and running. <laughs> so yes, it was a, it was a seven and, and fitness, as you know, is seven day a week business. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I still say sometimes like, you know, you're an entrepreneur when you're bummed out on Friday afternoon because people stop responding to your emails and you have to wait till Monday. Like I'm just, I, I love it. And like, you know, I don't mind working all the time and I, I have three children. So I obviously spend a lot of time with my family, but it is a, um, you know, it just, it, when I was in wall street, you know, you would kind of look forward to Friday and look forward to a three day weekend. And when you're owning a business that you love three day weekends are like, Oh, now I have to wait till Tuesday to, to do my work. So it's really been, <laughs> it's really been, um, it's really been a passion and it's been a blast this whole time. I mean, lots of ups and downs and I'm sure we'll talk about all the you know setbacks and you know, mm -hmm. challenges that any business has, but throughout it's been certainly rewarding and fulfilling. Yeah, just one of the, uh, you know, sometimes we'll have a client come and they'll say, yeah, we've got X number of locations and we've got a, you know, our corporate office is in, in some other location. And I always felt, given I've, I've been an entrepreneur like yourself, is you got to kind of be in it to, to understand it and not necessarily, mm -hmm. like you said, you know, listening to where our customers and our members were going, like I'm sure that wasn't, you know, a survey box where somebody put, you know, a, Hey, Jennifer, can you open up a location? So it was from that personal interaction with people and actually listening and not like looking at the data, like the data actually comes out of people's mouths. And mm -hmm. I feel like some people kind of jump towards like, Oh, I need a corporate office. And well, where's your closest location it Should be <laughs> like right below where you are, or like you should actually be infused in it or else you're really not managing something. You probably don't really understand it. So, I totally agree. I've, I have, we have yet after 15 years to have any office that's not in a studio mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and looking back and it, maybe I've refined, I, I've become a little more professional over time, but I would, uh, my, my phone, if it was on speaker, you could hear all the classes going. So I could be on the phone with a bank. I could be on the phone with anyone, no matter who, it doesn't matter how important you are. If you're on speaker, you're going to hear someone counting to eight and JLo, you know, in the back, no matter what. And that's just the authentic, I mean, that's just me. And that's how we run the business. And I don't really care who you are. If you want to meet with me, we're going to meet in the studio. And this is mm -hmm. sort of where we, where we live. And we do, we do go to nice restaurants for meetings here and there. So we know we do have to present ourselves, but most of the time we're really just amongst client and amongst our staff. And, and that is really what infuses me with so much energy anyway. So if I'm outside of the studio for a while, um, it's easy to kind of forget why you're in business. Like you really need to see clients. And I still say, which isn't happening now because the studios are closed, but the, the sound of a phone ringing to me is like still music to my ears after all these years. And I still am grateful every time that phone rings. Got it. So when you think about, you know, the, the power, you know, whether it's, we'll talk about physique 57, but also just thinking about the industry in general, you know, there's the power of your location and the brand and your methodology. And there's also the power of the instructor. And I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, over the last year or so, 
given what's going on on social media and the ability for instructors to have this relationship with their members, which are technically your members, you know, how do you think about balancing that relationship and who really owns that relationship? And I think some people get it right and some people let it go too far where they, you know, don't give the instructor as much respect and also some that basically give the instructor way too much rope that that instructor is almost like the equivalent of if I had a hair salon stylist, which I don't, Mm -hmm. but if Mm -hmm. I did, like I'm wed to that stylist. And if that stylist moves to another barbershop or a, you know, a hair salon, like uh, that relationship's not with the location. So how do you kind of think about this? And as we go forward, you know, what's the, what's the way to think about that, that balance of like that member is whose member and your talent is probably the most important part of the representation of your brand. Yeah, it's a great question. And we have, it's certainly been a big part of, of who we are with our instructors and our community and our method. And I think how we look at it is, and I don't think this is necessarily different from other studios, but our method is, is tried and true. So the, the bar method has been, this Physique 57 has been around for a very long time. And prior to that, our method actually existed more so in um, outside of the country, but has been around since the 1950s. And what Tani and I firmly believe in, and when we met for the first time, which was just uh, two weeks before we started the company together, by the way, but when mm-hmm. we met, the one thing that we had in common and we're so passionate about was the method. Like this method works every time and mm-hmm. our clients are fit and healthy injury free and our belief was that this method should exist all over the world so our first belief and our first passion is around the physique 57 method and then we invite instructors in to learn this method and we we pay them from the minute they walk in the door we, we are one of the few bar studios that uh, and this may change over time, I don't know, but we're one of the few bar studios that actually pays trainees. So we're saying, we like you right away. So you don't know anything about our method, but you're going to come in and we're going to pay you to learn it. And we're guaranteeing you a job and our average length of service for an instructor is four years. And we, you come in, we pay you, you're part of the family from the beginning. And then we understand that it's a symbiotic relationship we have this method that we want to give to you and we want you to teach it really well. And we want you to bring your authentic selves to teach this method. And we don't believe that there's any certain type of um, characteristics that any particular teacher should have. We just want you to be you, but bigger in the class. And that's a big part of our 200 hour training program. So I think it starts with that, with the very, we only hire about 7% of the people that apply for the job. So you have to really be like close to perfect just to get the job. Then we put an enormous amount of money and time into training you. And then we hopefully treat you with respect. I mean, I think we do. We treat you with respect. We pay you well, benefits, vacation, all of that. And so I I think there's, and, and then there's mutual respect. So we haven't had a situation where we have felt like we've had uh, like a star trainer teaching something 
other than what other people are teaching. Some people just teach it better. I mean, obviously you're going to have, we had 50, at the time before we closed, we had 50 teachers. Of course, you have some people that are on the top of the list and some people that, you know, for a variety of reasons that aren't at the bottom of the list. But we have, I think, spent a lot of time and I think it's rooted in respect and learning and sharing and just, you know, hopefully a good compensation package and just a good, um, a good overall employment uh, situation that makes people want to stay with us. So we have never had a situation where someone left and like the numbers went down or we lost a whole bunch of clients. When people have left, which they do, it's to either teach something else or they've moved away or it's just literally gone in some other direction. So we do want to give um, credit to our top instructors, but we don't give them unlimited power. Mm-hmm. And, and nor, nor are they asking for it. So it just has been something that I think we've managed really, really well. And that the person who has managed our instructors from the beginning has been with the company for 12 years. And she herself was an instructor. So there's just a lot of continuity in that area. So what you, you mentioned before that, that everything's been done out of, um, out of internally generated cash flow, which, which clearly, you know, eliminates the pressure that some other entrepreneurs feel when they've taken in other capital and they've, you know, put some nice hockey stick projections on the number of locations they're going to have over time and, and, and revenue, which turns into, you know, a board meeting, which turns into a lot of, you know, angst related to, Hey, I'm providing a, a solution and I'm helping hundreds of thousands of people, you know, but I don't have the urge to grow because you want that investment to, to make some return in the near term. And also when I think about, you know, public companies, you know, trying to hit their quarterly numbers, you know, their quarterly numbers are not necessarily in the best interest of the long-term viability of what they're trying to do. So mm-hmm. how important or, or what kind of advice would you give to someone? Obviously there's a lot of, you know, money chasing the space pre-COVID and, and when things normalize, I'm sure there'll be plenty of private equity involved again, but I think a number of entrepreneurs, you know, looking back would say, you know, I kind of wish I didn't take that capital because it was the wrong, yeah, it, was, it wasn't the right fit. And they're not in the studio living this and they don't understand that even though it is a simplistic business, you know, it's not something that you stamp out like, you know, Home Depot, and we're going to put some shelves up, you know, and we're going to fill it up right. and, and go from there. So, you know, what's your advice to entrepreneurs that, you know, may think that they're solving a frustration by coming up with some iteration of, you know, bar or functional training, or I don't know, you know, some kind of, you know, hot aerial trapeze yoga or whatever they're doing (laughs) and say, look, why don't you, you know, maybe, maybe try not to take it in capital if you don't need to, or, you know, just know what you're signing up for. So maybe it's an open-ended question of how, you're kind of unique in the fact that you've, I'm sure, been called hundreds of times and you've said no. So how, how does that work? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start off with just explaining how we, how we did grow. And so we started off with three studios in New York. We then expanded to Los Angeles. And we also put a 
lot of money into what is now the digital business, which was back then the media business, which was DVDs. So we, uh, we've, we've always had like these three things that we do. We, we have studios, corporate on studios in New York and Los Angeles. We have DVDs, which we then transformed into an on-demand business, which we've had. We had DVDs starting in 2009 and then on demand since 2012. And then we started international licensing. So we're in four countries internationally. So we've, and that strategy very much came from the fact that we sometimes had money and sometimes did not have money. So mm-hmm. we would, if we had extra cash flow, we would build a studio. And if we didn't, we, we wouldn't. <laughs> Then we, but, but we did have a lot of interest to grow, and a lot of that came from outside of the country. So we have four studios in Bangkok. We have two studios in Dubai. We're also in India and Manila. And we were able to do that because at any given time, one of those streams of revenue was very strong. Like the DVD business, like out of the blue, was humongous in 2009. Mm-hmm. We sure. sold in all 50 states in 30 days. Um, but then that went away. But then the DVD business went away. And then we had to parlay that into a digital business and it took a long time for us to get that revenue back. Um, so I'm just pointing this out because there, there have been times when we've been very cash poor and there's been times when we've been cash rich and then we then decide what to do. Uh, once we've set our strategy, we decide what to invest in. And I think to for people who are thinking of raising money, I would just say, I, I don't think it's, I, I certainly don't think it's a bad idea. I think there's tons of fantastic businesses, you know, most that have raised money. I think I would just suggest that you think of other ways that you could generate revenue, whether that be through other uh, product extensions or or slowing down your growth. And Growing quickly is always more expensive than you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And just running a business is usually more expensive than you, than you think it's going to be. And I have seen in many cases, there's tremendous rewards for raising money and growing quickly. And, and, then, and I'm sure that's going to be the same pre-COVID, post-COVID. You know, in, in a couple of years, we'll probably see that again. But I, I, but I do think it's really important to get the right partner. And one thing that we've... I haven't really been against raising money. It's not like I said, I am deciding not to, and I don't hang up on everyone who calls. I think for us, one thing that has been um, interesting, I wouldn't even say it's challenge, it's just like thought provoking is because we do these different things, we have a pretty strong on-demand business, we have the corporate owned strategy, then we have the international, and then we're also franchising in America. We just started selling franchises right before COVID, but we have 10 sold. So it's pretty small, but we do these different things. And sometimes it can be hard to raise money for all of those things. So someone might come in and say, I'm an expert in growing your digital business, or I'm an expert in international expansion, or my private equity firm is fantastic for franchising. Um, And and sometimes they, they don't really want this whole package. So I would say, you know, very candidly, one great thing is that we have expanded our business down these business lines and that has kept us alive and we've doubled our digital business lately and we're, we're not, we're, we're here and studios can be open or closed. Like we're still, we're fine. So we've protected ourselves on the downside, probably limited ourselves a little bit on the upside, but at the same time, you know, we're still here and mm-hmm. we, we can set our own strategy so, um, but at the same time, someone might come in and say, well, each one of those businesses is actually too small for me. Like, so it, it's, there's no right or wrong answer. I think it's just like what, 
what do you want to do with your business? And, and likely if you are going to raise money, I think you, you give up some of your, um, decision-making potentially in your autonomy, but, but maybe that's okay at some point. So I don't think I would never raise money. I just haven't raised money yet. And Uh, the pandemic certainly, you know, we'll we'll call that into question for, for physique and for a lot of businesses. mm -hmm. So when you looked at franchising and the fact that you already had licensees in Dubai and Bangkok, I'm assuming you and Tanya are very set on the, the quality control. And, you know, I'd say one of the reasons why, you know, SoulCycle or, you know, Barry's maybe did a little, but they were so overly concerned about the quality of the, of the presentation of that live class, that franchising didn't make sense, mm-hmm. you know, from a quality standpoint, and also probably from giving someone the opportunity to make the type of unit economic returns that you can make with those types of locations to get six or 8% of that versus kind of keeping it as white space for you to go into on your own. So have you found that, I guess the question is, you know, what got you comfortable with franchising? Was it because you were able to select the franchisees and that was your decision and and you got comfortable with that? Or was it, um, you know, more related to, Hey, there's all this in just like listening to your members to say, Hey, look, I want you to go to Soho. I need you to come to Hamptons. Like there was just so much demand that you said, I actually need to figure out how to do this because there's no reason for this method not to be there. If there's this much demand that's inbound, I'm assuming you didn't market a franchise. I'm assuming that was, that came to Mm -hmm. you and then you've responded to it. Yeah. So, um, and so part of this answer will be why we expanded internationally before we expanded in America. So, so correct. When it came down to like a lot of businesses, like you could just have even one open and people will start asking about franchising. So we've had, we've even had celebrities want to franchise it or people bringing it to their vacation homes. I mean, we had, we've had a lot of fun, fun, funny, and wacky requests. I'll say right. <laughs> all of the above to bring physique um, around the country. And in every case, exactly what you're saying, it was like, well, how are we going to get this done? And how even the front desk experience, the teacher experience, the method, everything, we just couldn't imagine that we could keep the quality where it was. And we've been very brand focused from, from the beginning. And so we turned down all of those opportunities, but then we really did start to see that there was so much interest, especially internationally. And I think maybe because of our location in New York city, and all of the interest came from people who were devout clients, but then at some point in their life, mid thirties or so, were deciding to move home to mm-hmm. have their, to have family, to be reunited with their extended family. And each one said, "I'm not leaving without you." Like I've been coming to physique every morning for five years, and just because I'm getting married and moving to Mumbai doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing physique fifty sevens. So I'm going to do everything I can in my power to convince you <laughs> to let me open the right. studio. And what we started with, Pete, which I think was interesting, is we actually started consulting. So before I said yes to licensing, before I said yes to partnering or doing any anything with anyone, I partnered with a new company in the Philippines as a consultant. And I said to my team, and to them, we're not, we've only been around for like five years. I don't even really have good SOPs written. We're still learning as we go. I don't even know what I'd be selling you other than 
a training program and a brand name, but even that training program we're developing as we go. So what I will do though, is I'll just, we'll be your consultant. So you can start your own company with your own name, Mm. uh, and we'll train you and we'll, um, we'll help you, but I don't, you don't like, I don't need my name on it. Like, let me just see what I can do for you. And at the with, same, with, with using the method, like a version of the method, kind version, of like okay. a, 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 um, it was the method, but it wasn't like a 200 hour training program. It was a three week training program. I gotcha. So take like the best of and go and start your studio. And you can say powered by at that time, it was very popular to say powered by physique 57. Um, so it was their studio, but it was powered by us. And, um, at the same time, I was opening up our Beverly Hills studio and it just worked out coincidentally that they were opening up at the same time. And what I found is that that studio in that market was just knocking the cover off the ball in Asia and our studio in Beverly Hills was fine, but I was just amazed by how well this Asian studio was doing. So it was really a way for me to kind of practice licensing, practice consulting, and see it do like phenomenally well in an Asian market. So phenomenal that they opened up four studios in like two and a half years. Mm. And that's, and so, you know, it definitely, I didn't make as much money as if I opened my own studio. Um, and obviously, but it was a great training ground for me. So like, but then two years later is when we started to say yes to these clients who wanted to open up in other markets. And of course it had to be the perfect partner. And, you know, for, for I, we probably have accepted like 2% of the requests that we've had uh, to open up in other markets, but it gave me the confidence that this method works in other places. So then from there, uh, what we actually found from a QA standpoint that you're talking about, we, we go and we visit these international studios and they are just, they're like, they're beautiful. The front desks are phenomenal. The teachers are fantastic. They're teaching exactly what they're supposed to teach. We have all sorts of technology to keep in touch and watch the classes. And so we have, we have not yet been disappointed by the activities and the brand presentation of our international partners, which then gave me confidence to license to, to franchise here because mm-hmm. we figure if, well, if I, we can train, if we can have four studios in Bangkok, we can hopefully, you know, knock on wood, <laughs> we can do this in America. So, so the, the, the path was start our own studios, experiment with Asia, consulting in Asia, then expand to start licensing and to then franchise. And, um, and I think because we were patient and we didn't really have this, you know, hockey stick timeline that you're talking about, we were able to just kind of like learn as we go and just do this with real, um, diligence and like proof behind each one of the steps we've taken. So now, so now, now we're here. So we have, do have a studio in Westport, Connecticut. Indianapolis is opening up soon. We have signed for a handful in Long Island and Brooklyn, but New York State is at a standstill with fitness right now. And then we're also opening in Philadelphia. And um, so, so that's where we are. So we will have many, you know, up to 20 studios, hopefully at some point when, when we can. I'll just put it that way. Um, in the meantime, though, the digital business is, is going strong. Yeah. So, do, you know, just to, just on that to, to kind of recap what I, what I think is really interesting is, you know, and, and Dave and I came kind of came up with this like win loss strategy. So every day, you know, decide if you win or lose. And at the end mm-hmm. of the month, you know, like 
you probably like at least 20 and 10 as an entrepreneur. So, you know, you're like playoff team, but it sounded to me like, you know, you needed to make sure that each one of those steps resulted in a win in order for you to like take the next step. And, you know, like we say in entrepreneur land, you know, you just got to get a couple wins, you know, and then mm-hmm. like, it'll, it'll keep you going. But it seems like that was almost like a, you know, a, bent, a, a milestone that says, look, we're not crossing over the next chasm until I know that we won at this game. And, and I, I think some of the franchisors that are out there might say, hey, look, we got all this inbound demand. Let's just sell franchises to people. And like, we'll figure out how to help them make money later once we get the distribution and then you kind of, the wheels kind of fall off and, you know, you got about a lot of franchisees that are angry because, you know, they thought that, you know, you, you sold them a lemon. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting way that you thought about it and like systematically like hit those wins and then say, okay, that, that gives me the, the confidence and the belief. And otherwise it sounds like you might've, you might, you might be disappointed in your, decision. Yeah. I love that. I think that the winning and the losing, and and I, and I would like to take a minute to talk about losing because I find that people talk about their wins a lot, (laughs) but I'm happy to talk about things I've lost. I think, um, one thing that is equally as important is assessing your wins is assessing your losses. And I will just take a minute to talk about the losses. So I have closed studios and I have just as much confidence and I consider that a success too, to decide not to renew a lease. So we're Mm -hmm. no longer in the Hamptons. I'm no longer in Los Angeles. And a lot of those like premier addresses that I was really excited to have on my website were just not working for me. So something if, if there's um, people listening that are thinking of either entering this business or they're in the business is cutting your losses is equally as important as sustaining your wins. And I, a big learning that I've had over the decade and a half is that you really do need to make money. (laughs) And I know that sounds crazy, but sometimes people just like Beverly Hills sounds great. And this sounds great. And that sounds great. And, but at the end of the day, like you just have to come to terms with the fact that you just might not be able to make money in a certain market. And there's just so much competition and there's so much this or so much that, and call it class paths, call it competition, call it whatever you want. Uh, but there have been markets that we just haven't done well in and that maybe we did phenomenally well in at one point, And then you just stop doing well, or the economics are out of whack and, different people come into the market and whatever, like the Hamptons was great for us. And then it was dismal and LA was great. And then it was not great. And you just have to like wake up to that fact. And sometimes when you say to your team, like, Hey, I'm, I want to rethink this market. I don't think it's working for us. Like you automatically get like, Oh no, but the clients are so great. And so, so is such a good instructor. And like, you can convince yourself of anything, but it's like, check out my spreadsheet, like, you know, the same one I started with, I still have, and this is not making money. So it's got to go. And mm. those are really, really, really hard decisions. And almost always no one's going to like it. When you, when you <laughs> let's focus on that one for a second, cause I think it's interesting because a number of our clients, you know, look at, we look at their portfolio, mostly on the health club side. And if it's like 40 locations, they'll have like 30 good ones and 10 bad ones. And they'll say, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of, we don't want the bad press. We don't want people to think that we're shrinking. 
you know, it's a market that we should be in. So if it kind of just breaks even or loses a little money and I say, I, my, I've come to the conclusion. It's like, look, you just spend 80, 80% of your time trying to fix something that just might not be fixable anymore. And in this day and age of, you know, the news cycle, you know, maybe it's 24 hours. And like, it used to be like, all right, we get bad press for like two weeks. Right. So that's, that's probably even like, not even, that's not, that's not even happening anymore. So like, what, <laughs> yeah, like what are some of the rebuttals you've been able to say like, Hey, look, if Beverly Hills doesn't work, like, yeah, people will talk about it for a couple of weeks and then like, we'll move on and we might have made the right financial decision. So you might've covered this already, but maybe, you know, like to, to tie it together and, you know, give some, maybe an, another entrepreneur, like a soundbite of what they should say to their team. Yes, I completely agree. And, and I was one of those people. I mean, even to, a few years ago, I would have said like all sorts, all sorts of, yeah, buts. like, yeah, but it's Beverly Hills and yeah, but our teachers are amazing. And yeah, but the building is gorgeous. And you know, in the back of my mind, I'm probably thinking like, yeah, and I like to go visit, you know, <laughs> I'm like thinking right. of every reason in the world to go. And I was, and then I would also think about what are people going to say and all, and all of that stuff. And it just, you know, a switch went off when it just, there's a point where if you see one more red number on a spreadsheet, you're just going to want to throw that laptop out the window. And I think that's, <laughs> that's what happened. I was like, come on guys. Like, and, and I, and when I say, come on guys, it's really me. Like, come on. I know like, so, and, and it's hard to watch these studios. Like it's unbelievable how something can do so well. And then a few little changes in the market, just poof, like just one month, it starts to do poorly. And then the next month and the next month and the next month. And you can try, as you said, you can put so much time into fixing it. And it's just like, okay, there's something that we're doing wrong and, or there's something in that, in that market that has changed. And I would say, for example, class pass, like, you know, in some markets we recovered in some markets we didn't. And I think that, um, yeah, you just have to think it really comes down to, I think like not just money, but I think one thing I would add that, that came to my mind too was respect for my team because I was asking them to quote unquote, fix something. And their mm-hmm. job is not really just to go around fixing stuff. Their job is to create and to improve and to grow and to do some really fun things. And if their entire job is like a plumber's job to go like fix a studio, that's, mm-hmm. that's just no fun. And you're just going to you know, so it was like, go to LA and fix it and let's put money against it and fix it. And I just was like hearing myself say that. And I was like, just, you know what, instead of fixing that, why don't you just go make this other awesome thing even better? And that's just so much more fun. And that's actually a career. And so, yeah, I think you really have to think about that. And and I agree, like we closed LA and I'm, yes, clients were, I mean, it was heartbreaking. Clients were very upset. We got emails like three pages long and it, it was like lovely slash heartbreaking. Um, but people have moved on, you know, they've moved on and, it was really, really difficult, but we did it. Yeah. And, um, so, so and, I, and I don't regret it, obviously. Right. So, so in closing, what are some of the quotes that, uh, that people hear you say, or that go off in your, uh, in your mind that, uh, be the words of wisdom or like what keeps you going as an entrepreneur? 
That is funny. I mean, I think they, people in my company do say things like, I'm going to channel Jennifer right now. I think if they're channeling <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> uh, which I think is, which is, which is so fun. I think it's like keeping brand standards really high and like, you know, we, we experiment we, and I love to experiment. I love it, love it, love it, but it still has to be brand appropriate. And, um, I think if they were to channel me, it's, it's brand standards. It's how we treat people, whether it's a client or an employee um, or, or ourselves, it's, it's how we treat everyone in our orbit. And I think, um, and I think like financial management, like it's just one, one thing that I've been talking to the team a lot about. And I think I would love for people to take the opportunity during COVID to do this is you really can peel back the onion on every single dollar that's coming in and out of your company, especially when all of your studios go poof in the air. And it has allowed me to look at the things that we were spending money on and, and it, you know, everything seemed like a great idea when it was a great idea <laughs> and now mm-hmm. it's a bad idea. So, um, looking at like, just take yourself off your CEO pedestal. And like, I literally opened the mail. I changed all the American express bills to come to my apartment. All of our phone bills came to my apartment and I have looked at every single dollar that comes in and goes out of this company, which before you had a big team and you had you know, this person and that person, you know, had all these people. And now with studios closed, we had a late layoff, 95 people. And I have an amazing, phenomenal, tiny team. And the meticulous financial management that is required pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, during pandemic, just like that is what I would love everyone to understand. And every single dime. And we have storage units we're closing and phone companies that were shutting down. And I know this might sound like, of course you do that, or this might sound like business 101, but it's amazing how that can go away when you're growing and you have full Mm -hmm, studios and everyone's all happy. And then when those people go away and you're just stuck with a pile of mail, (laughs) you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this, that, and the other thing. And um, so I would say when people channel Jen, it's also like, what are we spending money on and why and who's approving that expense and, and, and coming back is a much, much leaner organization. And I hope everybody does. I mean, I hope we all realize the clients when we open again, just want that exercise method. So we used to give out free apples. We used to do all these fun things, but like at the end of the day, I think they just want a personal connection. They want a safe and effective exercise. And if our studios are smaller if we have less technology, if we have less this, less that, I think we're going to be okay for a while because I think what clients really want is us for, be, for us to be open. So just make it so that you can be open and you can pay everybody and run a good business. Great. Well, I think that's great advice. So um, glad we were able to connect today. We look forward to getting this out to the entire network and uh, continue to be a leader globally in the boutique sector. And uh, hopefully we can come up and uh, and see you in your office when uh, when the when the coast is clear. Yes, anytime. Awesome. We're <laughs> Thank gonna send you. you something on uh, Halo Academy too. Maybe we'll uh, maybe you can join us. I think you'd enjoy it. Uh, we oh. do uh, we do five business school cases, and we do it with CEOs and uh, founders of businesses. So we'll send you some info on that. I'd love to see if you got time to join us on that. 
Well, right Thank before you. and after you open the mail. Uh, <laughs> the next, uh, There's next a lot less weeks. mail now. A lot All less right. mail these days. <laughs> All right, well, it's good to see you and uh, look forward to, uh, to to continue to hear the progress. And it's a, it's a great Thank story. You. And I'm glad that you're, uh, you're in the halo sector and not uh, talking to you at uh, trading desk somewhere. <laughs> I agree. institution. I um, agree. This is Pete Moore. As you know, I am a big believer in personal development. I got a time-saving opportunity here for you recommending Dan Millman's Four Purposes of Life. Go to audible.com forward slash Helo Talks. You want to register there, get a free audio book. It's $14.95 a month thereafter giving you things that I do to make myself better and hopefully it makes you better. Go Halo. Let's play to win.